Abba Father, thank you so much for what you've done today already and how you have allowed me to witness healing and your grace not wasted on anyone. Your truth is living. God, would you please give us wisdom right now to know you through your word, love you through your spirit, and obey you and find ourselves imitating your son. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so here's the paragraph in English, but Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we've seen the Lord. And in fact, the Greek syntax suggests they kept on saying to him, they repeated it, we've seen him. I'm telling you the truth. We saw him. Come on, you've got to believe me. We saw him. There's this repetitive kind of effort to persuade Thomas. But Thomas said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Notice the absence of the feet. I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut and stood in their midst and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands. Reach here your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. That, too, is a prolepsis. That's a proleptic statement. And yet believed. That's a past tense concept. He is talking about, this is a proleptic statement, that there are other people who will hear the gospel and know the gospel when they preach it. All right. So several things that we want to work through. Who is Thomas? How many of you have it in your brain that it's doubting Thomas? Is that kind of programmed in? That's actually not correct. That's not a fair assessment of Thomas. He's far more astute, far more aggressive, and far more outstanding among the disciples than this this marginalized, shady kind of guy that just doubts everything that's happening around him. And in fact, in John eleven sixteen, 16, uh, we have the beginning portion of the Lazarus resurrection story. And Thomas makes this statement. Well, let's just go with him and die with him. (laughs) There's two ways to take that. Number one, he's exasperated and he's losing hope. Well, okay, it's all, this is all going to pot. Let's just go ahead and go to Jerusalem and die. Let's get it over with. You know, he's, the sky's falling, chicken little kind of thing. Or he's saying, no, no game on. I get it. You told us that we are going to be scourged in the synagogues, there's going to be arrests, bring it, I'm ready. And I think that there's, there's something to that idea that is far more courageous, far more, has far more resolve than we may think. Okay? 
Do you know who is the guy that asked the question that leads Jesus to the response, I am the way, the truth, and the life? Thomas asked it. It's Thomas. It's Thomas. So I think that his faith is far deeper than we may give him credit for. I think that he has greater resolution than we think he may have. And I think he knows how to ask the right questions. He's got the courage to ask questions that perhaps others in the group are afraid to ask. And he says, Lord, how do we know where you're going? You keep saying that we know. We don't know. Where are you going? How do we know the way? And that's when he says, I am the way, the truth, and life. So he just, he literally spoke up (coughs) for what others in the group are struggling with. And so he may not be the, the flimsy, wimpy guy that we sometimes spin him to be because uh, we're not sure what the word didymus means or something. It simply means twin. That's all that it means. He has a twin sibling. That's really all that it means. It doesn't mean it's somehow associated with doubting. Is there some obscure link that didymus means to doubt somewhere? No, no, it just means twin. It's all that it means, you know. You can see the usage in the Old Testament. It just means twin. Okay. Well, we've all doubted. Miracles happen today, and we doubt them. Yeah, yes. Well, we relate to it, mm-hmm. certainly, and um, and sometimes we we are not unlike the people that said, "If I could just see a sign, if I could just see a sign." Right. So the disciples keep saying, "You know, we've seen the Lord." And then he protests and says, no, unless I see his hands and the imprint of the nails, uh, I'm, I'm not going to believe. Yes, sir. I think, you know, when you putting it in the context of the way you've described uh, Thomas, I think more in terms of somebody who's probably emotionally a lot more solid. Yes. And when you put him, you juxtapose him against, say, Peter, mm-hmm. who he has seen go from one emotion to the other. Yes. You know, in a matter of days. Yes. He's sitting there thinking, you know, he, you know, a couple of days ago, a few days ago, this guy was running for the hills. Yes. You know, saying, I never knew the man. Yes. And now he's saying, you've seen him. You know, wait a second. Yes. You know, yes. what's going on here? Yes. Yes. Let's reinforce it, Rick. That's very insightful. So, uh, you perhaps are not aware about the practice of magic in Judaism. Rich, are you familiar with this? It's actually very common. And when you look back at uh, B.C. or first century era, second, third century, uh, magicians were very common. You have Hani the circle drawer, Hananiah Bendoza, other people that were considered to be miracle workers slash magicians. And there's even lots of Jewish folklore about the rings of Solomon. And, and it's, it's folklore, you know, legend, but Solomon had these magic rings and he could conjure up demons and did, and they actually helped with the workload on the building the temple. <laughs> you know, put those demons to work. All right, submit them to Yahweh, the creator God. Now this is actually a part of the backdrop of Judaism. We tend to think it's really neat and clean and squeaky, and, but no, it's messy. And Jews got dabbled in all kinds of dangerous you know, stuff, such as magic, all right? Uh, you can see it in the, the, the Kabbalah writings and all these things. Okay, so you ready? 
the Pharisees, religious leaders, get what, guess what they accused Jesus of doing? How did he do some of his miracles? They accused him of doing what? By the power of Satan. Satan, yes. But also the power of magic. All right? Even to the point that they created some, some of his... Uh, let, me re, let me start again. I'm getting ahead of myself. Remember his resurrection miracles? Did he raise anybody from the dead? Who? Lazarus. Lazarus. And there was a girl. Little boy. Yeah, little boy, okay. Well, they, in order to dishonor and discredit Jesus and elevate the, the religious leaders, elevating their honor status in the community, they just simply said, well, these are the works of Satan. Or they said, he's just a magician. It's a trick. They weren't dead in the first place. Now, if you knew that, there were rumors. By the way, were there rumors that the disciples stole the body? Oh, yeah. Of course there were. That's why, that's why they still Pontius stole. Pilate posted a guard, right? And they still prevailed, right? There's lots of rumors going on here. What if Thomas knew that, that there was some trickery? What if he just really got spooked and he said, look, I've got to see the wounds. I, I, I want to put my finger in the nail's hole. I want to put my hand where the spear went in. And if I do, and I can verify this is a corporeal body, a real body, real physicality, and I recognize him as my Savior, I will not believe. What if that was going on? You know, do we celebrate apologetics today? You know, the, the, the science of defending the faith? Do you think he's being a bit of a scientist here? Do you think so? I, I think so. There's a, we can look at it this way. Uh, what's fascinating is that Jesus doesn't shame him. And by the way, this would be the perfect time to shame him. It really would be. But he actually doesn't. In fact, notice there's something really peculiar. Now, Rick, it's going to be an argument from silence but we don't have really much to go with. Notice, notice the timeline. <coughs> Thomas shows up. We don't know where he's been. He's coming in after the fact. There's, they're, they're persuading him. We've seen the Lord. He protests. I'm not going to believe unless I see verification. And then eight days later, eight days later, the disciples are still behind a locked door. They're still afraid. How many peace pronouncements have been given so far? Two. Has he not pronounced that they have received the Spirit? And they're still hiding behind the locked door? I think that often more reinforces Thomas's attitude. Absolutely. And then we, you have the third if, peace pronouncement. Here, if our Messiah has overcome death, yes. what are you so afraid of now? Well, exactly, and, and then what does it mean to, to receive the Spirit? Because if they did, we don't see a lot of exciting things happening right now. They're still hiding behind locked doors. And later on in the text, Peter says, you know what, I'm going fishing. I'm going back to the old ways. And he's received the Spirit. That's odd. That's peculiar behaviors, you know. Unless when Jesus said receive the Spirit, that's a prolepsis. About what's to come. 
Okay. One way. So watch this is watch the peculiarity here. Someone either told Jesus that Tom isn't going to believe until he sees the wounds. He shows up, he evidently transports through the locked doors. Pop, he's there. And look, either someone said, Psst, Jesus, Thomas, you know, the guy who struggles with doubt, he said he's not going to believe in you. And Jesus goes, I'll take care of that watch. Either that happened, or, you know, Thomas somehow addressed it, brought it up, or Jesus supernaturally knew what was already going on with Thomas, and he shifts immediately. He walks in, he stands in their midst, verse 26, the third peace pronouncement, peace be with you, and then he turns to Thomas and says, you, reach here with your finger. I think, you know, there's another, there's another possibility here, too, is when you think of Jesus just showing up, this is just a spirit. A ghost, yes, which would and, be common. You know, and, yes. you know, so, you know, Thomas is saying, unless I can touch and feel. Yes, yes. Know, then I know, yes. you know, what yes. you're saying is true, and it's yes. not just a spirit. Yes. Now, let me make sure, why is Rick, what is Rick saying important? What do we know about Judaism and death and the burial of the dead and their spirits, ghosts? What do we know? that would make this a valid historical claim. Because the sin is in the skin. Very well spoken. Uh Yeah. And so he hasn't decayed yet. So there's still a problem. Right. But more than that, remember when Jesus is walking on the water, the storm and the sea, and they were afraid it was a ghost. What happens to the soul or the spirit? This is within Judaism. Someone who drowns at sea. Well, wasn't also there some tradition like they would, I can't remember exactly how it went, but it was because they believed that the spirit would be separate from the body, Mm -hmm. that there were, you had to bury him within a certain period of time, or you had to do something within a certain period of time. Yes. Yes, very, very strict, strict rituals around this. When someone died at sea and they could not recover the body, because remember, holiness resides in the bones and sin in the skin. I like the way you said that. Sin resides in the flesh. And once the bones are, are, the flesh is decayed, we now have redemption, a picture of redemption. The spirit floats about and haunts about in the waters. It has no place to rest. The bones have not been relocated. And the Jews believed that sometimes the spirit would come out from the deep and try to drown or harm other people in an effort to find a place of rest. They had, in their own belief system, a legitimate fear that a ghost was approaching them on the water and threatened their lives. Makes sense. So you're right, Rick. All of a sudden, Jesus walks through a wall, and there he is. He could be afraid. That is possible. And yet it's brilliant that Jesus doesn't uh, say anything. It's as though he knows because he is he's certainly uh, discerning the thoughts and intents of the human heart or somehow 
Thomas addresses it, and it's not in the text. Argument from silence. But Jesus gets right to it. Reach here with your finger and see my hands. Reach here with your hand. Put it into my side. Uh, the verb, the verb, be gino here. You know, I can't. I don't have a pointer on this. I apologize. But uh, it's an imperative verb. It's active, and it's middle voice. You know what it means? For your own sake, for your own benefit, please believe. Do this on your own behalf. If you've got a brain in your head, be believing, not unbelieving. This is beautiful language. Now, something I'd want you to see in the, uh, from the Greek text where, Pete, where, where Thomas says, I'm not going to believe, that is actually a, a double negative. Uch, uch, me, pistuo. No, none, or none, no way, believing. It's a double negative, and it's in the emphatic position. I mean, Thomas is digging in his heels. I am really serious. No, no believing at all. That's how strong this is, all right? And this is beautiful. Um, he's able to touch the corporeal body. He really does touch Carly. And Thomas answers, my Lord and my God. That is the greatest Christological statement given in the Gospel of John. In fact, it is the peak of, of uh, Revelation. This is where Jesus is called God. Makes sense? This is the high point of the entire Gospel. And it's interesting. It's the guy that we oftentimes label as the doubter who makes the greatest Christological confession of anybody in the Gospels. Isn't that amazing? So now I want you to appreciate how it's translated. Uh, it really is translated uh, in Greek, and I'm, I'm just going to do it literally. Uh, the Lord of me and the God of me is what he actually said. If you had Greek ears, if you could hear it, you would literally hear, oh, the Lord of me, the God of me. That's literally the syntax that is used which is beautiful, we miss it in English. You know, my Lord, my God. Now, something's interesting. You ready for a little history, Bruce? The concept, my Lord, my God. Do you know what emperor, emperor used that for himself? Caesar. Well, yes, but in this instance, Domitian. And he is the emperor that was launching the horrific persecution, most likely against the church in Revelation where you see all that language about the great beast and all these images. They're really efforts to depict the vile, cruel persecution being rendered by Domitian, all right? And in fact, uh, the historian Suetonius in the Lives of the Caesars, Andrea, records that the, the high-ranking officials said of Domitian, our Lord and our God has willed it so and it must be done. They use that very language for Domitian. My Lord and my God and we must do his will. So it's that serious. 
that language is used by John, who writes the Revelation in a period of time when persecution is getting really intense. Talk about irony. <laughs> and it's Thomas who's got the guts to say something of, with a profound political propaganda threat to it. There's actually laws in Rome that you can have only one king. And when you say there's another and you call him Lord God, you're competing against the Caesar and you can't do that. That's the card that the Pharisees played to get Jesus crucified. And it's Thomas who said that. There's another aspect of this that Thomas, uh, you know, we give Thomas a bad rap because I think we take the, uh, what Jesus said, you know, blessed are those who have not seen and believed. Yes. The difference is, is Thomas is having to live through this. Yes. We have the advantage of seeing the whole story in a very short period of time. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, we can make a decision based on what we literally read in an hour's period of time where yeah. Thomas is having to live through this. Yes. You know, with you know, all of the cultural and all of the experiences yeah. Yeah. that he has to relate to with he yes. and his other disciples. Yes. And Rick, eight days, they shared meals together. And, you know, they talked and talked and talked and talked. And it took Thomas to this place of no, no way. I'm not believing. No, no way. Until I see the wounds. I'm not going to do it. Yeah. So he really dug his heels in. And that man may have far more courage than he imagined. Except for here's the thing. He did not come to a place of unbelief. Right. He came to a place of faith. He didn't walk away. It's not abandoning him. And John's writing this so many years later, and he, we've got this point of story about him, and we've got the long passage about Mary Magdalene, and John would have had to have known the end of their story, the end of it. Yes, he knew it. And so... Yeah. Amazing, isn't it? Now... There's doubt, and then there's stubbornness. And there's a difference, mm -hmm. isn't there? Sure, sure. And yet, we have a beatitude, a karyos, blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who weep. Blessed are the hungry. And we have one here. Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. It's one of his beatitudes, right? Okay. Now, does he say this to shame Thomas? No. Does he, however, in making this statement... Does it help Thomas and everybody else who's listening, and especially us, understand that we too can be just as saved? We can have just we can have the same legitimacy of belief that Thomas did, even though we are what what did we count it out, crunch it out, forty-five to fifty-ish generations removed from Jesus Christ? Well, I think what what Jesus is doing here with Thomas and the disciples lesson is saying have compassion 
on those who come after you mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. they can be just as saved as you can be. Yes. Because, yes. you know, without them understanding that other people can believe without having seen, they may not have the compassion and the sense of mission that Jesus is wanting them to have at this moment. Yes, yes. And when you think about it, Rick, there's only a very elite few people that could actually see him post-resurrection compared to the millions who would never have a chance to see him. Never. Absolutely so. Okay, let's do this. Let's shift this, pull this all into our world today. It's 2018. We have, we have all kinds of political stuff going on. We have these socialist Democrats and what's happening with Brett Kavanaugh. And we've got Republicans, all this pressure. Our president is Donald Trump. Millennials, 96% of millennials. Now, these are non-Christians. Non-Christian millennials. 96% of them have virtually no moral belief in Christianity at all. 96%. They have no belief, no conviction about marriage, about anything, any morality, any, any morality goes, whatever you feel good about. This is, these are millennials today. Uh, and by the way, many Christian millennials are not much better in their struggles, okay? The average singles ministry, it's very, very different than it was, what it used to be. So how do we pull this forward today? Do we, how do we take lesson from Thomas? Is there something going on in his life, his character, that we need to lay hold of? Is there something in the statement of Jesus that we need to lay hold of? How do we pull it into our, this is a life group. How do we live this out? What difference does this make in our life right now? You're the body of Christ. Take care of yourselves. How do we do it? women and their feelings or whatever and it's not really based on our identity in God and so for me to look at it and say like, well unless I like see that this is supported by scripture I'm not going to believe yeah. um, but on the other hand I think it's really important that, that peace be with you with all the chaos especially being a millennial earlier that's it's very easy to, to be constantly worried I mean this is the most worried generation Absolutely. And if you don't have God in the midst of you, you're you're not going to be at peace. Yeah, yeah. Michelle, thank you so much. So let's let's drill there just for a bit, okay? Uh, pop quiz: What are ego defenses? What are those things? Those little th secret things we do down deep to help us with our pain. What do we do? What are they? Splitting. Splitting is one of them. Uh, that's an ego defense where we have uh, our morality is so lined out that we have a good room and a bad room and when someone hurts us and we're upset we put them in the bad room where we ignore them okay someone in the good room we love them they're nice we like them splitting and it makes everything orderly the problem is that the new testament would call that bitterness and grudge holding someone hurts you put them in the bad room and you keep them there that's an ego defense what are some others uh, didn't say denial. Denial. Avoidance, which are related. Absolutely. Okay, let's apply that idea of avoidance or repression. Okay. Have you ever struggled with doubt and you were so afraid 
that you wouldn't talk to anybody about it. You're embarrassed that, that you might come off as a doubting person today. Does that make sense? And you, 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 maybe you doubt the authority of Scripture. You, you doubt uh, basic core Christian doctrine. A lot of things. Whether this whole thing is just a religious game made up by religious people, and we label it Christianity, and it's just a big game, and I feel pressured into it because my parents went to church. And you doubt this stuff, but you wouldn't dare tell anybody about it because you might look bad or you'll make your parents look bad. And you feel so much pressure into that. You, you, you don't know where to put your doubts. You don't know how to work out your convictions. So what's one thing we can learn about Thomas in that instance? What can we do? Well, Jesus said you only need to have faith as big as a mustard seed. Right, right. So you, you don't have to feel like you can, you don't have to be as, feel like your faith is superstar level. Right, right, right. You only need a little bit. Yes, yeah, that's good. Keep going. Someone else. How does how, how does Thomas play into this idea of repression? It's okay to voice it. What's that? It's okay to voice it and to be honest. Did Jesus shame him for doing that? There's a lesson for us there that we can bring our worries, our doubts, our anxieties, our questions to him. And God's not up there wringing his hands, sweating bullets ready to fall off the throne because we struggle with some doubt. I think he welcomes it. Come, come, on, come to me. Let's reason together. Let's work this out. Well, in this instance, Jesus went to Thomas. I know, isn't that beautiful? And doesn't embarrass him in front of everybody. You know, exactly. No, you know, unlike during different parts of his ministry where he said, oh, you will will faith." He could. He didn't do that. (laughs) He didn't do it here. Yes, exactly. And it leads to the greatest Christological confession penned among the Gospels. The Lord of me, the God of me. Andrew? Yes. Yes. My doubts are your fault, God. You're a big failure in my life, and I have doubts, and I'm coming to you with my complaints. Thank you. 
Beautiful. Beautiful. Just gonna read Ephesians four. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit with the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We have to walk. Yes, yes, yes. So good. Let me let me pray for you right now, and I want to read from First Corinthians here. Abba, Father, thank you for what you've opened up our eyes to see. There's a bit of Thomas in us. Would you teach us that you are the safe place, and that we can bring our doubts, our questions. <coughs> our needs for verification to you and that you gave us great minds and you're not afraid of our intelligence. Teach us more about faith and that faith really is the assurance of things hoped for and the evidence of things unseen. Please teach us to follow you and to encourage each other to be strong in our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul writes 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until it comes. Prepare your hearts and your, when you're ready, please come to the table and enjoy the Lord's Supper. <laughs>